So good. You are so good. It's good to be home. Actually, it's freezing here. It was so hot over there. Um, we had a great time. Now, we did, um, we went over there and we've been doing over the last five years, we've been doing pastors and leaders training over there in the same provinces. So I've been reconnecting with the same people over and over again. And just going back this year, like something really shifted. Like I've never seen the group so responsive to the Lord and just so their hearts are open. So it's just so encouraging that, you know, we sow so much seed in our life and every single one of you do, but there's, there, is, oh, there is a harvest and sometimes we don't see that. But it's always encouraging when you go back and we see how God's been doing a work. And um, God, so there was, we did one day training. We had four sessions. I was with a friend. She was talking about prayer. And God gave me two messages. And one was on encounter. And one was about abundance. And I felt like it was really the Lord because those are two things they really need. Now, there's a lot of people in the villages. They come to church, but then they get busy and they don't come anymore. And they never really had an encounter with the Lord. They know about God in their heads, but they haven't really encountered Him in their heart. And so I've been speaking to those pastors and leaders about encounter. And we did a ministry time with encounter. And like God just showed up. Like God just showed up. Like His presence. Like in every, every, every uh, province it was different. But He just showed up and they were activated and they started to um, encounter the Lord. And so they can give it to their churches. So they can bring it to the people because the people over there, you know, you know how the encounter with the Lord changed your life and how the encounter in the heart changed your life. And so God was just really moving. It was just pretty incredible. And then the second message was on abundance. And before I left, God, God kept growing this message and he really put it on my heart to address the poverty thinking over there. And I was really nervous. I remember I said to Josh, I'm really nervous because God has given me this message and, and it's, it's, it's a challenging message for them because they are so in poverty thinking. Um, there is poverty and they call themselves poor, but they've got everything they need. But they've been told they're poor because they don't have all the stuff that apparently makes you happy, which doesn't. And so I've been addressing that and there's so, so the other thing is the pastors go to training and they actually get paid for their expenses. So they get paid to come to training, which sadly has started through a white person's ministry. And so all ministries in Cambodia do it now. So sometimes the pastors go to certain meetings because they get more money than at the other meeting, which is all poverty thinking. It's not abundance. And like, and God really started to speak to me about, well, what the people are doing, they are feeding that thinking. They're not going to releasing them into the freedom to break that poverty thinking. So I was addressing all that stuff. And I was, <laughs> I was so burdened. And <laughs> I was challenged. Or I was, well, not scared, but I was like, oh my gosh, God, you really need to do this. But God's anointing was just on the message. It was incredible. And he just broke in. And you could feel the conviction in the room. Like you could feel how it, they were like, yeah, I've thought this. Yeah, I've done this before. And then we just had a time where we repented and they repented. And, you know, I have to repent because often I think poverty too. Um, and then we did an, an offering and they actually... God just ended up, God ended up covering all the expenses for those training seminars. Now I had felt to put some money in, um, but it wasn't enough. And God ended up covering all the expenses. And at the end, the, the staff of Conquermang said to me, we've got $58.70 left of us. Do you want it back? And I'm like, no, I just sold this into what you're doing. And like God just showed up. God showed up through their own people. And that is just what needs to happen in, in those countries that are poor. And it was just amazing. And the staff, the staff of the organization we partner with, especially the province staff, they were so challenged. They were, because there wasn't enough money to pay for everything. And they were so challenged because they are thinking the same way than the people. And so even in their own organization, we are partnering with God was just 
challenging a mindset and bringing some freedom and showing them, hey, you need to trust in me and not to, in the white people. Um, and so it was just incredible. So thank you for all your prayers. I, I, I did end up sending a few emails out because I really felt we needed more coverage. But God really broke through. God broke through in one of the seminars was supposed to be canceled because of that whole money thing. Plus, there's elections coming up. So the government party is really um, controlling and they're not allowed to have big meetings. And in that province, they're like, they didn't want to do a big meeting. So we did a smaller meeting with like 15 people. But it was probably one of the most powerful meetings for God, really. They, they ended up pledging back the money that they were given, half of those people. And that's like a breakthrough, you know, for that country. That they are like, you know what? I want to think godly. I want to do kingdom and not poverty thinking. So it was just really cool. It was also, we went back to the village we've been working in for the last few years and got to reconnect with some of the people and like, what God's been doing over the years has just been so amazing. There's a school in that village and they, they are not Christians. And actually the headmaster, they're Buddhist because that's the national religion over there. And so we've been praying for them over the years and they have seen God move. And, and even this year going back, they're like, you know, you prayed for this last year and this is what happened. Like God really did something because of your prayers. It's like showing that God is real to people that don't even believe in our God, hey. And they are starting to recognize, wow, this God actually moves when you pray. And so that school has just been exploded. Like we, we started off with a little library there where we bought 30 books and we put it on a table. And now they have a whole library room where the kids can go and read. And like, and that's the next generation. <laughs> the next generation, just even hanging out with some of the kids, it's the next generation that are dreaming again over there. And they want to do something with their life and they want to become engineers. They don't just want to go in the cycle of poverty. They want to do something and they're going to be the ones that are going to change that country around. So it's just been super encouraging, tough at times. Um, lots of like addressing of spiritual strongholds and lots of prayer and warfare involved as always when you, you know, address things. I'm on missions, but yeah, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for your support. And yeah, God's just impacted lives in an incredible way. We saw a few healings and just saw God move in like incredible ways. So yeah, thank you. God just loves a genuine heart, a real heart to go out on mission to so great, Kirsten, and wow, so great. Thanks for sharing some incredible things. And God's movement is just shows all over the world. So awesome. Good morning. Is it all right? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, for those of you wor worried about it, we're going we're gonna to worship again. You know, I know that one song isn't satisfactory for the church. Um, but we th after the sermon, we will, uh, we will worship again uh, because I feel that what I'm going to speak on will make sense that we actually do end up uh, giving glory to God at the end of it. Um, I like Sean's prayer because at the end he covered the fact that Jesus will return again. I like that. It has to be. So that is a declaration of our faith that he will return. We don't know when. It could be now. It could be tomorrow, but until then, we get to rule and reign on this earth in Him. So what I want to speak about today, it's going to be a, bit, a little bit meaty. I'm going to, I've tried to simplify it as best I can. I have to wear glasses now since I turned 40. My eyes just suddenly one day started deteriorating. It's incredible. I was reading a book and I just thought, actually, I can't, I can't really see what's going on here. <laughs> and then I went and got glasses and whew, it all makes sense now. Um, but um, yeah, I only have to read, uh, wear them when I read. And, and if I look at you, you're actually a bit blurry um, with, with them on. Um, I want to speak to you about the forgiveness of sin, and in particular, the power of the forgiveness of sin. And um, I want to show you, as we go through this little journey, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions, my belief from what I can see in Scripture, and I, and I do stand alongside many others, and some people are, are great, great scholars of faith, that, that sin was never, ever, and is never, ever a moral failure. It, it was never a moral failure in the beginning. 
And it is not a moral failure. So moral failings is part of the consequence of sin. But sin itself is not moral failure. The Bible calls our moral failings the, the, the works of the flesh. It doesn't refer to it as a sin. And you, if you, I can't do the study of it now, but if you actually read very, very clinically through Scripture, you'll, you'll actually become quite aware of the fact that sin was never, is never pointed to as a moral failure. Whenever you see moral failing, it's, it's acts, acts of the flesh. So I don't want to talk about acts of the flesh today. What I want to talk about is actual sin. What is sin? What was this thing? And what is the power of the forgiveness of it? Okay, so let's start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're not going to read from the beginning. Um, we know that everything God created was good, correct? That, um, I'm going to pick it up from uh, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What, what an amazing truth. You know, we read through that and we breeze through it because it was what we learned in Sunday school. But God said, Let us make, let us make man in our image. And in our likeness. Likeness and image are two different things. Image is what you physically look like, and likeness is the nature of. So God said, let us make man in what we physically look like, but also in our nature, our very nature. So he will be, mankind will be in the nature of God. And let them have dominion. That's also a big word, the power word. Dominion, rulership, government. Over the fish of the sea and over every, sorry, and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. In case you forgot that you know, we were created in his image, he just decides to repeat himself. So God created man in his, Im in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Isn't that incredible? And God blessed them. Don't get too excited about it. Okay. And God blessed them. And God said to them, listen to what God said to us. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What an amazing vocation. Vocation is a job. Our job was this, to multiply in the image of God, in the likeness of God, to multiply and to have dominion over the earth. Isn't that incredible? What a great task. To rule over it. And as I spoke weeks and weeks ago, I can't even remember the last time I spoke, but it seems like ages, but... Um, our, our role was to, be re, to, to act in God's government redemptively towards the earth. That where we go, we bring that redemption. The redemption that comes from being filled with the presence of God. Adam and Eve lived 100% in a garden that was in Eden, which is incredible because it's not the garden of Eden. Sunday school was wrong. It's a garden in Eden. There was a garden in Eden. Eden means paradise. It wasn't called the garden of paradise. It was a garden in paradise. My belief, and many others believe this, that the garden itself in paradise, where, the, where the, the two trees were, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was a spiritual dimension that connected Adam and Eve to heaven. It's where God walked with them in what the scriptures say, the cool of the day. The true translation is the ruah. So God walked with them in the breath or the spirit of the day. So God walked with them in the spirit. He didn't come at sunset when it was cooler. Do you understand that? Okay. It's, it's amazing how when we take a translation from the original language and we move it into English, how we can just determine and, 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 and interpreters can just determine and, and lean and slant you towards their belief system. So we see God coming at, you know, the, the cool afternoon when the sun was going down because for some reason God didn't like it when it was hot. It's just saying, you know what I mean? If you think about it like that, it actually doesn't make sense. And we, we start to realize how, how at times foolish and pathetic and stupid some of our, our interpretations and thinking is. And how we've been swayed in one direction. The next thing we see, the fall of man. Now the serpent was more, now that word serpent, I need you to understand this. It is the word nakash, nakash. And it doesn't mean snake. 
it means, that, it means someone who whispers divinities. Okay? The deceiver. Someone who would whisper divinities. Is, and, 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 and because the snake, the physical snake, was a dangerous creature that would quietly slip in and then bite you, the, the Hebrews used the same word, nakash, because it was like a little whisper. It came in and it, and it brought in deception because you didn't even see it coming and it would bite them in their homes or in the fields while they were working. But the word nakash, whisperer, is the one, so there was a whisperer, we know who it was. It was Lucifer who was in the garden and, and they were quite comfortable to talk to him. Why? Because Adam and Eve were used to living in a spiritual dimension. Do you understand that? So this wasn't a strange thing. Oh, what's this? It wasn't a snake hanging in a tree talking to them. It was actually Lucifer standing there who looks like an angel of light, whispering divinities to them, telling them, hey, if you eat from this tree, you will be like God. You will know what is good and what is evil. You'll be able to judge good and evil. That was never the task of man. Man's task, ladies and gentlemen, the church of Jesus Christ across the world, our task was never to judge what is good and evil. What have we done? We have set ourselves up as the judges of what is good and evil. Oh, that, that's, that's evil. No, that's good. No, no, we don't like that. We think that that's evil. So that's what the church does. That's why the church has become so judgmental, because we're still living in that state. Isn't that just pathetic? You know what I'm saying? It's actually pathetic. Our job was never to do that. Our job was to act redemptively towards a broken world, to take God's glory into, into the world and just, just multiply that. Jesus comes back and he shows us the exact same thing. He doesn't judge what is good and evil. What he does is he just shows the nature and character of God. So mankind turns their affection away from God and they turn it towards something else. What was the something else? Them becoming like God, knowing what is good and evil. I want to suggest to you, as, as other scholars would also do so, and I'm not a scholar by any means, but... Um, I've, I've, I've studied some, some, some great scholars, and, and this is what my belief is. Sin is when we, is idolatry. Bottom line, it's idolatry. It's when we turn our affection away from worshiping God towards worshiping anything else. And anything else can be anything. In this case, it was themselves. And that caused them to go into exile. Why? Because you now need to leave the garden. You need to leave the garden. Now, I want to just quickly take us to um, Romans chapter 1, if you can just jump there quickly. Romans chapter 1. We're going to jump through some scriptures. I'm going to take you Old, New Testament and Old Testament so we can see that it is like this from the beginning. And then at the end, I'm going to give a little bit of a um, conclusion, okay? Go to Romans chapter 1. And Paul speaks of this. I'm going to start from verse, for sake of time, I'm going to start from verse 16. Paul saying, I, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in the, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Just as it is written that the righteous shall live by faith. Now listen, now listen very carefully. For the, wrath, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Men are without excuse. For although, listen to this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the, for, for the immortal, sorry, for, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up or over to the lusts of their hearts 
to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for Allah and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's, does that make sense? So what happened is mankind turned their affection away from God onto other things in the garden themselves, and then we see it just spiraling downwards from there, where, where throughout their history they continued to worship foreign gods, be it themselves, be it the Baals, be it um, Molech, any of these, peop- any of these, these foreign gods when they, wor- they worshipped. So, so ultimately in the garden they turn their affection away, they enter into idolatry, and the consequence of the idolatry is you now have to leave the garden. You have to leave this garden. Therefore, you have no access to the unlimited presence of God anymore. You're no longer dwelling continuously with God. And because of that, God gives them over. God did not create it, but God gave them over to the lust of their own hearts. To live in the lust of their own hearts. Let's carry on. From verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men uh, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for the error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Carry on through those scriptures. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, faithful, sorry, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen to verse, chapter, uh, verse 20, uh, 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So straight away what happens is this. Man coming out of God's presence completely loses his way and starts to give his affection over to everything else but God himself. Isn't that amazing? There's a song I, I heard on the radio. I can't even remember the person who sang it, but it goes, um, it goes, what if God was one of us? Have you heard that song? It's an old song, right? Uh, like in, when I mean old, it's like 90s. Um, but... but there's a verse where she, where she sings this, and it's quite interesting. She goes, if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe? Isn't that incredible? And I thought to myself, what an amazing word. That's where the world has got to. Since leaving, we would rather worship anything else because if we, if we believed in a God, we know that we'd have to turn to worship him. And turning to worship him in mankind's um, desires that they would have to be subjected and come and succumb to his his rules and regulations which the church has predominantly portrayed as being quite stringent and strict and that God himself would come and punish if you step out of line even if you're born again and so anyone in the world if I was in the world I wouldn't want to follow God like that that's just not there's 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 nothing that I'm going to gain by serving a God like that in actual fact the pagans served gods like that if you did not give your sacrifices if you do not give yourself over and, you, and, and give that God what he wanted, he would come and punish you. He would, he would withhold the rain. He, he would come and give you a disease. That's the kind of God, the pagan gods that they served. And we somehow have allowed a, a, a little bit of that to creep into our understanding of, our, of, of Jehovah, of Yahweh, of our God Almighty. And I think that, that has done a great disservice to the gospel. So, consequence of sin, which is idolatry, is exile. The vocation of man as the image bearers of God is, is lost. And man is now left to work the soil by their own strength. To gain fruit from it. No longer giving glory to God. No longer uh, being the image bearers of God. And no longer acting in a redemptive manner towards the world around them. As we worship, let me say this. As we worship God and our affection is towards God, we become those who bear his image. That's what happens. We bear God's image when we worship him. Who you, who you give your affection to is who you behold is who you would look like. So we see God select a man. His name is Abraham. 
God blesses Abraham, he prophesies over Abraham, and he says that through you, the nations shall now be blessed. So he's now prophesying and speaking and giving a decree over a man named Abraham that he will now pick up through his lineage, we will pick up the vocation of mankind again. We see Abraham um, moving through, and through Abraham, God then calls a people, because God never wants it to be one-man show. He wants it to be a people. So God chooses a people, a nation that he calls Israel the chosen ones. Their vocation was to then carry on what he had originally had mankind do. God will, God will bring his presence and his presence will, will be among them. However, it was limited to being with inside at that time an ark, okay? And he would be with them and they would then go and act redemptively, driving out all that is unrighteous, driving out all the ungodliness and establishing God's righteous government and rule. But we see every time they fail. It's through what? It's through sin. It's through the worshiping of foreign gods. Just go with me to Kings quickly. Now, before we get into one, go to 1 Kings chapter 12. Before we, before we uh, read through 1 Kings chapter 12, I want to just point out to you that if sin... Sorry, let me just find my place first. I'm going to point this out to you. David. What was David known for? Two things. Number one, he was known as a worshiper. And number two, he was a man who was known, he was after God's heart. A man who was after my heart. God said that of him. He is a man after my own heart. Okay? David was a worshiper. We know that from history and we know that from reading the scriptures. David failed morally under the law. The Lord already come. David failed morally. He did two things. One, he raped Bathsheba. She didn't willfully come. Remember, as a king in those days, he walked down, saw her by the river when he was supposed to be fighting battles, went down there and had her taken to himself and slept with her. She was married. She would have known as a Jewish girl, if you slept with somebody in adultery, you'll be stoned to death. Would she have willingly given herself over to David knowing she was married? No. David raped her. Let's get that straight. The Bible doesn't use that kind of language, but he did. The next thing he devises, he, sorry, he devises a plan to have her husband killed. Those are two moral failures. Why did God not remove David as king? Why was Israel not taken into exile? And why did nations not come and plunder Israel? But Israel thrived under the leadership of David when he was a moral failure. Because sin was never a moral failure. David continued to worship God, and he repented of what he did. He changed his view. He came before God. He asked for forgiveness. God forgave him, and David continued to lead Israel. But now we look at his son, Solomon, the wisest man in the world, full of wealth. David leaves him a lot of wealth. David even collects all the stuff for the temple to be built. Have a look at this. Go with me. What did I say it was? Sorry, 1 Kings 12, 25. Um, no, hold on. Sorry, 1 Kings 11. And then we'll go to 12. Sorry about that. Verse, first verse of it. Now Solomon loved many foreign wives along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites... All these other women. I don't have time to try and pronounce them. He loved all these women from foreign nations. Concerning which the Lord himself, God had said to them, to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage, you not combine yourself, or enter into covenant with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn, you away, they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these people in love. He had 700 wives. We go through this. Verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, or Sidonians, sorry, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Oh, but David morally failed. Come on. You see how warped we've made this? We've, we've, we've snuck things in there, and then we sit as the judges of what is good and evil, judging moral failures as sin and dealing with people accordingly, not in a redemptive manner. 
But sin was worship, idolatry, the worship of foreign gods. If that doesn't get you, let's go to chapter 12, as I said. Chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam, who became a king, built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there, and let's just keep going through. Verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, idols, straight away. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods. And he gives them these golden calves. I'm going to have to start paraphrasing through here. Rehoboam. Let's go to Rehoboam. The next king that comes through. Just so I can show you two examples and you can go read through Kings. Uh, chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14. You can have some homework to do after this. For your own sake, not for mine. Um, so we see Jeroboam. Verse 21, 14 verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 40 years old when he began to reign. His mother, and he, from verse 22, And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars, an ashram on every hill and under every green tree. And there they also, made, they, they also had male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before his people. They worshipped foreign gods. I want you to, for your own sake, just go skim through the book of Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And just note and see what happens. When a king that was right in the sight of God, yeah. he destroyed the idols in the land and he and he brought the people back to worshiping God. And then other kings would come and it says that they did what was evil. They did what their fathers had done or so-and-so had done and they began to worship other idols. And every single time they worshiped idols, they were either plundered by a foreign nation or they were taken into exile. Ultimately, the exile wasn't to, ba was to Babylon. They end up going into Babylon. And in Babylon, they lived there for generations, completely overcome, completely um, subdued by that nation. And we see down the track, eventually, I mean, you've got Daniel in that come through the, the situation. We don't want to get into that at the moment, but Daniel comes in prophesying about the fact that God will redeem his people. And so what happened is they lived as, a, as suffering servants of the Babylonians and other nations. Nehemiah comes into the picture. He rebuilds the city, okay? And he brings people back into Jerusalem, but after that, we see other prophets, Jeremiah being one of those, who still prophesy about a day when the Lord himself will come and redeem his people from exile and come and be with them again. Now, if, 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 the, if the exile was purely geographical, then, then Nehemiah had satisfied it. Because effectively, the Jews came back into Israel. But then the Romans came and they occupied Israel, occupied Jerusalem. And so Israel was never, ever actually free. Because... The issue was not a geographical exile. It was a vocation. It was a, it was an, it was a, a creation exile. It was an a image-bearing exile. It was a, a, a place where man had completely lost that, that intimacy with God. So Israel live in Jerusalem. They live in Israel, their land, in Galilee, and they completely plundered. They're not, God is, God is not worshipped the way he should be. They're not free, and they are suffering under Roman rule. Now we're going to get into a little bit of understanding of, of history, of, 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 the, um, of the Israelite understanding of, hist of what they understood this to be. It is very well known, you can do your own study, that the Jews believed that through suffering, through their suffering, which they were, they were going through, and, they, and they, they bore their suffering, constantly crying out to God to help them, but they believed that through their suffering... They would be forgiven of their sin, and God would then redeem them, coming, driving out the nations that were, that were occupying their land, and God would once again come and dwell among them as he did in the days of David. They waited for a Messiah. They understood the concept of a Messiah, that the anointed king who was of the lineage of David would come, and he would again destroy the evil that was amongst them, and that the suffering would be bring about the forgiveness of sin. That is what they believed. 
Many, many men had come. If you go read through uh, Josephus, uh, a, a, um, a Jewish historian, who was also, by the way, born into, he, he was partly, partly Roman and partly Jewish. He was Jewish by heritage, but Roman by birth. Um, he, he wrote um, some pretty um, solid historical documentation of, 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 of those times, leading up to the t- times of Jesus and beyond. And he, in some of his writings, he notes that there were, there were certain people that had raised up saying that they were the Messiah and that they were going to lead God's people. And people would actually gather around them. 300, 400 people at times would gather around them and they would go on this revolutionary trail to try and um, usurp power from Rome. And they would, they would become revolutionaries. And what would happen is when Rome got hold of them, they would grab the leader, the man who was saying he was the Messiah, and they would crucify him on a cross. And they put them on crosses on the sides of the roads where they would hang there in absolute shame. And their people would scatter and run away and hide. And, they, and this person laying there was never raised back to life. And what Rome was saying is if you stand up against us, we will destroy you in the most horrific inhumane way, which was to put somebody on a cross. And they would, they would hang there and they would be left to die. Birds would come and peck at their eyes. Animals would come and try and eat their feet while they're hanging on this cross. And they, 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 they would have to die naturally. Sometimes it would take them days to die. Just hanging there, stripped completely naked. Many men and men had tried to do this, to try and redeem them, and it died. And God was silent for, for 300 years. And then all of a sudden, Jesus arrives on the scene. God had a plan. Many people claiming to be the Messiah and redeem Israel from, 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 from foreign rule um, had failed, and then suddenly Jesus comes. But his message is different. His message is not one that is, I'm going to redeem Israel from the rulership of Rome. His, his message was this, that I am going to redeem mankind from the exile that they are, have been living in for thousands of years since Adam had been kicked out of the garden. Israel believed that through the suffering of them as a nation, God would come and forgive them of their sin. Jesus became the suffering. He was the one who suffered to forgive mankind of their sin, to bring us back into that place of having affection towards God, turning worship. And Jesus, when you look at how he models it out, he lives perfectly as a human being should have lived, giving his complete affection to God. I do not say anything except I hear from my Father, and I do not do anything except what I see my Father doing. That is the lifestyle when Paul says, by your life, that becomes your your spiritual act of worship. See, singing songs... On a Sunday, or in your car at home, is not where worship begins and ends. Worship is the singing of song. Worship is our prayer. Worship is what I'm doing now. When I'm declaring to you what Jesus himself has done, and God through the Messiah has done in redeeming us, that there is worship. Why? Because it's elevating God. It's elevating him to the place that he's meant to be. It is also through singing. Singing is part of it, but also through your, through your lifestyle. The way that I am and the way that our, our father, Rio, and the way that our husband, Naomi, and the way that she is a wife towards me. It's a bit loud now. <laughs> the way that she is towards me, the way I am towards my friends and my family, the way I am and the way I conduct myself in the workplace, the way I conduct myself on the sports field, However, wherever it is in your life that you're meant to be, how we live our life out honoring God is worship unto Him. We become, as the church, the embodiment of God's kingdom on earth. Like we are, you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside you, we hear that every Sunday. We become that embodiment. We embody the very kingdom as an individual and then more so as a collective unit called the church, which is the global church broken into smaller pockets called local churches. Together, as a nation of kings and priests. That was Israel's role. That was Adam and Eve's role. We govern redemptively. We work redemptively. How we are with each other, non-judgmental towards the moral failings. Jesus was not judgmental towards the moral failures of mankind. He was more judgmental towards the religious attitude of the Pharisees. 
Yet we take on, and I was saying to Naomi that I said, how much, how, how much are we so like the Pharisees? We preach against them, we speak about how horrific they were, but when we set ourselves up as the judges of what is good and evil, we do exactly what they do. Moral failure is not an issue to be solved. Sin is an issue to be solved, and Jesus solved it. And when we bring people into God's presence, God deals with the moral issues where mankind has lost his way. When we try to solve moral failure, we actually hurt people. We do. Because we have no power to do it. I have no power to solve your moral failures. Neither have you to solve mine. But one thing I can do is I can act redemptively towards you in every occasion, being not judgmental, but, but acting redemptively and lovingly the way Jesus would. And as you meet Jesus, and as you live with, with, with the, the Spirit of God on a daily basis, He will take away those things that are damaging to your nature because he hates those things, because, because they are things that hurt the people that he loves. Moral failure hurts you, and God will deal with that. Forgiveness of sin, friends, is, is a powerful thing. It's not, it's not when we come and, oh, forgive me of my sin, Lord God, because you know last night I, 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 I slept around, or I got drunk, or I took drugs, or whatever it may be. That's not what we're doing. Forgive me, Father, of my sin, which you've already done in Jesus, because my heart, the affection of my heart has been turned away from you, and I've been worshiping other things, my job, my money, my family, my house, my holidays, whatever it may be that you worship, it turns your affection away from God, and, and powers and principalities can establish themselves over your life in that situation. But when you worship God, it destroys the powers and principalities. That's how God did it. So how does forgiveness result in victory over the powers? The idols, and that includes human rulers, when they are idolized, whether formally, as um, the Roman Empire did, or informally, whether they gain their power because humans give it to them, humans are designed to worship God and exercise responsibility in this world. But when humans worship idols instead, so that their image-bearing um, humaneness corrupts itself into sin, missing the mark of the human vocation. That's what sin is. We, we missed the mark. Our mark was there, worshiping of God. And we missed that mark and worshiped something next to him, be it a golden calf or be it your, your job. The idols, the idols, whatever they are, then use this power that we've given over to tyrannize and ultimately to destroy their devotees and the wider world. But when sins are forgiven, the idols lose their power. That's a, uh, sorry, a quote from N.T. Wright. I'll quote another uh, quote from him. One can, of course, sum up all the consequent distortions and fracturings of human life with the word sin. But to jump straight there without recognizing the careful analysis that Paul has offered is itself to miss the mark. In understanding what he is saying, sin is not just doing the things God has forbidden. It is, as we have seen in Scripture, the failure to be fully functioning, God-reflecting human beings. That is what Paul sums up in his writings. All sinned and fell short of the glory of God. He is referring to the glory that as true humans they should have possessed. This is the glory spoken of in Psalm 8. The status and responsibility of looking after God's world on, on his behalf. This status and his activity are sustained by true worship of the true God. This is the royal vocation which is undergirded by our priestly duty as sons and daughters, priests and kings. The forgiveness of sin, friends, is a powerful, powerful event. It's a powerful reality, let me put it that way. God brings us from living in exile to Him as servants in this world, suffering in this world, he brings us out of that and he puts us back into a garden state life. However, we now become that garden in which the tree of life dwells, the spirit of God dwells inside of us. And as we go, where we go, the garden goes with us. And, we, and that garden has redemptive qualities because with that garden, which is the kingdom of God, we always use the word kingdom. We love that word, kingdom, kingdom. But I've learned many Christians don't know what the kingdom is. You go, what is the kingdom? Um, yeah, it's, it's God. You know, it's when God's with us. Yeah, to some degree. But the kingdom of God is his justice system. It's his government. 
His, which is righteousness, holiness, it's peace, it's joy, it's love, it's right standing, it's honor and glory to God constantly going up. We see that through, through, through uh, the scriptures, this constant uh, praise and worship, not only singing, but just your life is just worshiping God, worshiping God. And those who come around you feel the redemptive qualities. And when we step out of that place, we, we, we start to feel the powers and principalities oppressing us again. Don't you feel that sometimes? You just feel that there's this weird, like you start freaking out about your money. That's a big, this is a big one for all of us. You start worrying about how much money you've got. Guess what happens to you? you do you feel an oppression coming on you? Or do you feel an excitement? Oh, I feel good. I've got no money. No, we don't feel that. We don't feel that. Why don't we feel that? Because, because what happens is we step into worrying about money. How am I going to get more money? I need to. Hey, if we worship God, guess what happens? It doesn't matter where you're in. Paul says, uh, being rich or being poor, uh, in want or, in, or, or with plenty, I have been, I've, I'm content. Because it doesn't matter what you've got. Because you've got it all. Even if it doesn't physically look that way in liquid cash. But when we worship God, what happens? Joy comes. I've had no money before. So much so that, I, that, that myself and my, my late wife, Farah, we, we for six months, this is what we had for dinner. Toasted cheese sandwiches. I couldn't buy Rio nappies. My mum had to buy them. We had nothing. In a, in a country where there's no Centrelink. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? If you got nothing, you got nothing, man. I couldn't pay my rent. And I just remember, and I got offered jobs overseas to go and work in Africa, but I knew God wanted me in that church called Southside at the time. I just knew God wanted me here. And they're like, no, go work. If you go to Tanzania, we're building a hotel there. You're, you're an engineer. We'd love for you to come work there. We'll pay you 5,000 US dollars a month. For a South African, time's at by 15. That's what you're getting back in rands. We'll fly you and fly out. You go there for two months. You come back for, for two weeks, two months, two weeks. Hey, how many of us would have gone on that plane? Yeah. I remember sitting there going, saying to Farah, this is an opportunity. We don't have to suffer and struggle anymore. And, and, and I, I remember going and praying about it at the beach, and, and I just, God, every time he says, you are meant to be here, and you, you, you need to stay. And I remember sitting there, and you've got to explain to your wife when, when there's no food, and, and, and you've got a baby that can't be fed, and you're saying, God's told me I need to stay here. True is Bob, and God came through for us time and time again. And rent got paid. I don't even know how. Money got slipped under our. I'm not. We didn't tell anyone about this. We would come home, and there'd be money under our front door, and I mean, like an envelope with thousands of rands in it, enough to pay for food and rent. How? I don't know. I have no idea. I know that God did it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And through that time, I'm telling you, I did waver. I did start freaking out. But, but, but God would pull me straight. He said, you need, to, you need to keep your focus on me. And so through that time, ultimately, we, we maintained our joy. That's happened to me so many times in my life. I don't know where to, where to begin with. But God came through time and time again because we kept our affection on him. I was, can I tell you what I was? I was a young Christian who was too stupid to realize that, that, I, that, I, that I had the ability to not trust God. I'll say that again because it doesn't make sense when I said it. I was a young enough Christian that I didn't have, I was, I was, young, I was a, such a young Christian that I was too stupid to understand that I, that I, that I couldn't trust God. That there were moments where I, I could decide not to trust God. As I grew older as a Christian, I began to learn how not to trust God. And that's when that kind of garbage crept in, where I started freaking out when things weren't happening. Because as a young Christian, I was like, this is everything. God, God is, he's delivered me from, from uh, drug addiction. He had, he had given me everything. I was feeling the joy of the Lord in my life every single day. I just thought God would just take care of everything. And you know what? I was right. Then I got wiser in my own Christianity, and I listened to people preaching, and I began to freak out about the fact that I could, that, that, that God might not come through. And my joy waned. And every time I worshiped God, my joy would lift again to the point that I would sit in a hospital room with a dying wife and we would just worship. And I tell you what, we felt, I tell you I felt no fear. And I tell you that my late wife, Farah, my, who was my best friend, felt no fear. I remember sitting there and just going, this is the most incredible feeling I've ever had. Ben came into the hospital room after Farah had passed away and made the presence of God as we, we just sat there worshiping. She lay there in the body dead with myself and Ben and Clinton Rochelle standing around that bed and we worship God. And I tell you, the presence of God in that room was something I've, I haven't felt for a long time. Why? Because that's where we were meant to dwell. Now I can worship God in the good moments 
and feel excited, and, but, I can, but and then I can, I can not worship him and freak out in the bad moment, or I can worship him in those moments, and then I remain constant in, in my vocation. I'm not grumbling, oh, God didn't come through for me, and then people pick that attitude up from me, which, you know, for, for a few months early, uh, uh, last year, uh, uh, middle of last year, I had that attitude. I had that bad attitude. So people around me were just getting poisoned by my garbage. I mean, who wants to hang around with that kind of person? I was just critical and angry about everything. And, you know, Ben would come to my home and I could tell you, he'd probably walk going, so that just tastes sour in Brad's home. And that wasn't what my home was meant to be like. My home never was like that before, but I'd lost my way. All of a sudden, something happens. God touches me in a meeting standing right there. And he just comes and floods me with, with joy and love and, 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 and showing me what forgiveness looks like again. And there was just this redemption that came over me as I stood in this meeting. And since that day, guess what? Everything's just, it's, it's just good again. Do I still have issues in life? Yes. But, but ultimately, the joy of the Lord is there. And I, I, every day, I'm trying my best to worship God in every circumstance. Even me and Noam's had this thing where I said to him, we just got to stop grumbling. We're just sitting on the couch. I said, we just got to stop grumbling. It's absolutely pointless. And I said to her, it actually doesn't breed love. Am I right, love? But then all of a sudden, we just said, you know, we're not going to grumble about that. We're going to say, like, she'll go, oh, there's so much traffic. And I said, hey, it's Friday. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's Friday. We're going, it's, it's weekend, baby. You know what I mean? We just, we, we just find something that's exciting, something to live for. It's exciting to, to live with God all the time. And people come into your life and they pick it up. Well, why aren't you grumbling and broken and moaning like everybody else? Well, because you know, at the end of the day, the government I live under isn't the government of Australia, Cambodia, South Africa. It's the government of heaven, man. And that government is full of joy and righteousness and peace because I've been forgiven of my sin, my waywardness, and I'm now able to put my attention and affection onto God and see him just move in wonder. I'm, I'm going to end it there because I have a lot more to go through, but I, I honestly believe that there's en enough is said. And, and the reason why we held, we held back um, on the worship is because I said to Ben, I think that we need to worship at the end of this because it just makes sense yeah. to actually begin to lift up God to the place that he's meant to be. And that's the key element. Worship, prayer, it's got to be God-centered. Our preaching has got to be God-centered. It can't be about us. We can't focus on the brokenness of, of mankind. There's a place for that. It's called pastoral care. But we've got to focus in these times on God. We've got to focus in our preaching on God. In your prayer time, start off by focusing on God and then bring before Him the request that you need. But don't start with, oh God, I need. It's not a great place to start, okay? The great place to start is you are God. You are who you say you are. Give Him glory, honor, and then you start saying, Lord, now I'm gonna ask you to take care of these things because I have no ability to do so. Give me wisdom in this. Deal with this individual. Deal with this circumstance because God, I have no power to do it except in you and you're the one who's gonna move these circumstances in favor of your kingdom, not me, but in favor of your kingdom. Remember that. Don't move things in favor of me, God. Move things in favor of your kingdom. Because that ultimately is where we're meant to be putting our affection, right? And if it's in favor of His kingdom, guess what's going to happen? We are in that kingdom. The favor is going to come to us. It might not come how you think, but it's coming. It's coming how He believes it should be for you, for your best interest, and for you to be able to do your vocation well. Amen? So why don't we, why don't we worship? Is that all right?